I'm Narbel. And I'm Chloe. And you're listening to Very Junior Doctors. A podcast made for students by students. You're listening to season two. Hi everyone, welcome to our first episode of season two of Very Junior Doctors. We are joined by a very special guest today, Zane. Hi everyone, my name is Zane, I'm a third year medical student at Sheffield. My page is called Medheads 2020 and uh, yeah, check it out, you'll see loads of free stuff on there. We have Zane in today because we're talking about a really important conversation that you need to have when going from second year to third year and that's the transition from preclinical years to clinical years. For lots of people, it can be very daunting, very intimidating. And we wanted to talk about what it was like, any advice you had, any anecdotes that you'd like to share with our listeners and um, top tips for how to smoothly transition from year two to year three. Yeah, like Nava was saying, so we've got a few questions lined up for Zane, all about the transition. So our first question to you is, what were your uh, initial emotions when you transitioned from preclinical to clinical? So I think just like yourself, I was looking forward to placement and clinical years. I think it's just a great time to finally put everything that you've learned from lectures, everything that's been thrown at you, putting it into practice with patients. Um, but yeah, I, I, I must admit, there was a slight bit of nervousness to it as well, because you're, you're going into that hospital environment, which is probably, you know, doctors are run off their feet as well. And um, I mean, I can discuss it later on as well, that um, preclinical and clinical years are not the same um, because, for example, in preclinical years, you have your very strict timetable of taught lectures, but it's not the same clinical because doctors are obviously busy themselves. So it's a lot more independent in clinical years. But I would say on the whole, I was looking forward to starting clinical. And I think that's what every medical student sort of looks forward to as well, finally being able to like put their knowledge um, to patients and um, see if they can apply it. I think that's really, really good. And I think about that excitement of going into placement is something that I know I experienced, so I'm sure Narble would have as well, going in when you first start um, med school. And it's something that you achieve to look forward to. And it's a reason for going to the hospital, going to the GP, getting out of bed every morning and thinking this is what you want to do for the rest of your life. I mean, like you said, Zane, we were all really looking forward to going into our clinical years because I guess this is what all the studying is leading up to. Now you can actually apply all of the knowledge that you've gained in year one and year two and see theory really get into practice. So you're talking about like your emotions when you're transitioning from preclinical to clinical years. My next question is what support were you given by your university for this transition? Were you given any resources or the, did the teachers give you any advice or support? Um, what was that like? So actually, so at Sheffield, one thing I really, really enjoyed was, so before the placement period started, we had a, a module called Foundation Clinical Skills. And in that module, um, lecturers would go over all the different types of histories and examinations you'll probably come across in the wards. So cardiovascular, respiratory, GI, so on, neuro as well. And I think just having that, just, having that before starting your placement was one of the most useful things I've had. And it was, first of all, it was um, a pretty hectic week of just full on lectures of different histories and examinations. Um, but after the lectures, you would also be split off into smaller groups where you'd have a, a doctor um, going through the examination on a real patient as well. 
So at Sheffield, they have something called the Patients as Educators Programme. So we have real patients with real conditions from the community who actually volunteer to um, help medical students with their learning. So they're willingly, um, they want to be examined. Um, they, you know, they don't mind being examined and uh, having a history as well. Um, so we had that for each of the big systems, really. So um, the cardiovascular system, respiratory and GI system are three big ones that you'll probably get in your OSCEs as well. Oh, you most definitely will get one of them at least. And um, so um, I think that was the most helpful thing that the university has done for placement, really. So you were given quite a bit of support by the university in terms of give, giving you the opportunity to really look at patients on a one by one basis and follow through with them in terms of their diagnosis, looking at their cases and um, doing the continual steps. Um, so you slightly touched on this um, briefly earlier, but to you, what were the similarities, but also the differences between both preclinical and clinical that you've discovered so far? So. I think, honestly, there are more differences than there are similarities, in my opinion. So um, I think the biggest difference being, um, like I touched upon earlier on, was that your clinical years are more self-driven, it's more independent. So in your preclinical, um, you'd have your timetable lectures, your tutorials, um, your dissection sessions. But when, it, when you're chucked into clinical years, it's more self-driven. So um, unless your hospital that you're attached to are very, very strict, you normally can go in at a time which you find more suitable. Um, some students actually want to go in for the ward round in the morning because they think they learn a lot from it. Um, other students prefer to go into clinics more or go in a bit later on. I know that tomorrow I'm planning on to go in, planning on going into placement around six o'clock in the evening because that's when I know I can get some of my clinical skills signed off as well. So um, it is just all about when uh, you think it's best for you to go in. Preclinical, you would have, like I said, teaching sessions which are timetable. Um, you can have clear teaching sessions in clinical years. Some of the doctors are willing to give you teaching sessions, but it's not always a guaranteed. Um, but saying that, the uh, university can, um, oh, they do, at least at Sheffield, they do organise weekly sessions with a GP tutor. Um, so you can actually, in a small group, you get together with the same tutor every week to discuss cases that you've seen on the wards, um, anything in particular. And normally there's an overriding theme as well. So, for example, one week it may be breathing difficulties. So someone will bring in a case with, of a patient who they saw on the wards with breathing difficulties. And um, they'd go through it in, in a role play scenario. So, you know, the GP can actually ask you questions. People in, within the group can ask you questions as well. For example, what's brought you in today? Um, you say, you know, I've got, I've been struggling with my breathing quite a lot. And then it's putting your history taking skills to the test as well. So, you know, can you come up with a bunch of differentials and uh, eventually narrow it down to one diagnosis? So, yeah, those are some of the. Uh, maybe that's the only similarity I'd say between preclinical and clinical in that you, you may still have one teaching session a week or sometimes two but the biggest difference apart from that is just um, you decide when you go in you decide uh, how to make the most out of your time in placement we do have clinical skills that we need to get signed off which you've probably heard about sometimes they're quite easy so sometimes for example setting up infusion bags is quite easy but sometimes Taking bloods and putting cannulas in can be quite difficult depending on the patients you have. And 
for example, tomorrow I'm going to get um, subcutaneous injection signed off as well. Hopefully, fingers crossed. But yeah, it is very self-driven clinical years. You mentioned that you had a certain amount of procedures that you needed to check off or certain amount of actions with patients. How do you manage that? What advice would you give someone who is potentially listening to this and going into their third year and is worried about getting all of these activities checked off? What what advice would you give them? So I think my first bit of advice would be don't be shy with the doctors or the nurses or any of the healthcare professionals in the hospital. So it's important that earlier on at the start of your placement, you introduce yourself to the doctors, to the nurses, to the staff on the ward, because at the end of the day, chances are they will be the ones who will be signing off your skills. So if you can get into a good relationship with them, that will be helpful for you. And it may seem like there's a lot to get signed off, uh, but what I've been told by older medical students is that not to worry. So if you cannot seem, if you cannot get one particular thing signed off within this placement block, you'll have plenty more chances in the future throughout your years. Um, so it's not uh, that you need to get everything all signed off in this one placement block. I'd say the most important two are obviously taking bloods and cannulas and surgical scrubbing is very easy to get signed off as well because on this placement in particular, um, I'm in theatre once a week. So you just need someone to watch you scrub in and if you've done it safely, they can um, sign you off for that. But yeah, my first bit of advice would be don't be shy, so introduce yourself. Second bit of advice is uh, make sure you do have a good foundation, a bit of knowledge before you go into your clinical placement. So in Sheffield, in second year, you'll learn all of the pathology that you need to know, the different conditions, or at least the most common ones. And it's good to always make sure you stay on top of that and you keep on revising that because, for example, diabetes is very common. You'll see that on the ward somewhere. Um, certain cardiovascular diseases, especially valvular heart disease, um, you'll see that on the wards. Um, so it's important just to make sure you stay on top of that. So when you go in on the wards, you can at least in the back of your mind go through, right, this patient is coming with these symptoms, what could it be? And um, you can look in the notes, oh, they've got, for example, aortic stenosis. So you can actually think back on your knowledge of what causes aortic stenosis, what are the complications how is it managed? And then you can go into the patient's management plan and see whether, um, whether it matches your knowledge or not. So if you did not have that sort of foundation before going into placement, I think you would, you'd find yourself at a bit of a loose end on the wards. Um, you'd find yourself struggling um, to get involved as well. So that's my second bit of advice. You know, make sure you have a good uh, solid foundation of knowledge before you go into placement. Um, those are the two main bits of advice I'd give at the moment. If I do come across any more, I'll sort of point them out throughout this podcast. Amazing, thank you so much. There was some really, really good advice um, that you talked about then. And I think, um, I just wanna ask you um, a question about extracurricular activities, as mm. I think we focused heavily on the academic side of medicine. So when you're in your clinical years, do you actually have time to do extracurricular and hobbies and that sort of stuff. So yes, I think it depends on which hospital you're attached to because if you're within the same city as your university, obviously travel time won't be as, uh, as long as well. So you can afford to fit in extra things in between. And again, how strict your hospital is. Um, so I think even if you go in for six hours a day, that's more than enough as a medical student. And I don't think you'll 
be able to find enough things to do to within that within those six hours. But as a doctor, obviously you're going to be run off your feet. So six hours is probably not enough time as a doctor, but as a student, it's more than enough in my opinion. So even if you go in the morning, let's say nine o'clock, come back at three in the afternoon, yeah, you do have a lot of things you can get done uh, after your placement. So for example, myself in the evenings, I go swimming, I go to gym, um, you know, I go out for meals with friends as well. So I still do try to find that time to slot those activities in. Yeah, so I hope that answers the question. Yeah, no, it really does. And I think what we usually try and encourage in this podcast is maintaining a work-life balance, no matter what stage of medical school you're in. And like you've said, even in third year, your schedule is heavily dependent on your clinical routes and your clinical pathways, but you also need to make time for extracurricular things, you know, really taking time to self-care and also retain your mental health. How important do you think the work-life balance is? And do you have any anecdotes of potentially when you've, when you've struggled to maintain that work-life balance? I'd say I struggled in second year. Um, so second year was preclinical and compared to first year, second year was just, there were so many lectures, so many tutorials, so many different conditions to go over. And I think that's when I struggled the most actually to fit everything in. There were times when I had to cut gym out, for example, and there were times I had to make those sort of sacrifices. But I think the way I sort of managed it was accepting the fact that in medicine you just cannot know everything so they in lectures they may mention specific cancer for example which is quite rare but chances are you probably won't ever see it in your life you probably won't see it on the exams either so it's just knowing what knowledge you need to prioritize before the exams so the, um, the, the advice I've received from older medical students is learn what's common so diabetes is very common that, that's definitely going to come up in your exams and for things that are rare, they're only probably worth one mark and it's not huge in the grand scheme of things. So you can actually afford just to leave that out. And there, ha- there does come a time when you just have to say to yourself, I can't do anymore. That's it, you know, I'm not reading any more books. I'm putting it away. I'm going out. I'm doing something because there's only, you can only work so hard in medicine as well. And it's impossible, like I said, just to know everything. I think that's a really important point that you made, but how... You're not expected to know everything. And obviously, it's a continuous learning curve. And obviously, the more you know through the years, the better you're going to be as a doctor. But it's going to take time. You don't need to know everything in one instance. So, yeah, that's a really important um, aspect of medicine. Just leading on from that, what would you say you would change um, in your approach from first, from second year, sorry, to third year? What would I change? Mm, that's a good question. Um, so I think I had a good solid uh, foundation of knowledge to go into my clinical years. I felt very prepared in that sense. I think just being a bit more organised, really. Um, I, do, I did say in my latest post that it's worth thinking, let's say the day before, before you go into placement, what do I want to do in placement tomorrow? So you're not looking for something to do. So whether it's, I want to get blood signed off, I want to do um, a cardiovascular examination on the patient. Those are the two things I want to do tomorrow. There were times when I did not have that checklist in mind. I simply just went in on placement hoping that there was something for me to do. So I think if I, um, from the very start of my placement period, if I had done that, it would have been probably a bit more productive. Um, even now, there are still a ton of things that I've not got signed off, but um, I know I've got the main things signed off, so bloods and cannulas, but I've got those signed off. 
but I think that that's one thing that I would probably change going back. Your advice and your anecdotes have been amazing, and we really appreciate all of the the experience that you've shared with us. So I guess we're probably going to transition from you know your experience from pre clinical to cl- clinical years, and mainly focus on your account. We reached out because we knew how amazing your account was and how much it's changed. Um, well, the lives of students and you know their experiences when it comes to medical school. So we have a couple of questions about that. What really motivated you to start your account on Instagram? So I think people have asked me that sort of question before. So what I thought initially was, could I start something from zero and build it up to something big and something that people can all benefit from? I know myself, when I applied to medicine, I used a lot of different social media accounts. So Instagram, YouTube, I've, I've watched YouTubers and I found them very useful. And even the days in the life of a medical student, those have been very motivating for me. You know, knowing that, yes, A-levels are difficult, the UCAT is difficult, the BMAT is difficult, but knowing that one day you'll be in that position that you can actually do that as well. So that was one of the reasons why I started that account. I think the second reason is I've always quite liked teaching. <clears throat> so, and it's it's weird because it's something that's just come on um, uh, after I did my A-levels, um, because before that, I didn't really have that much of an interest in teaching. So I thought, you know, could I pass on my A-level knowledge to other people in a way that makes sense? And the, the challenge is, I mean, when it comes to Instagram, you can't really um, make long videos like you can on YouTube, for example. So can I teach people a-level biology in a, in a way that's um, condensed and concise uh, through the use of pictures and if you look at a lot of my posts they do use a lot of color and pictures because that's just how I learn so I thought that's helped a lot of people to learn as well and those have been the two main reasons why I started the account. Yeah that's really interesting and as somebody who obviously runs very junior doctors with Narbo and my own medical um, student page I hear it resonate what you said, but watching other students, seeing what medicine is actually like, I mm. think that's really, really important because sometimes you can have this fantasy of what medicine is like from all the TV programs and think, oh, this looks really interesting, but in real life, it's completely different. <laughs> and yeah. you think, wow, this is really, really fun. And yeah, I think one thing I would like to um, ask you is, what would be your advice if somebody say a medical student or another um, student of any other discipline, what would you say to them if they wanted to start their own account to inspire others about their profession? I'd say go for it, give it a go. Um, I mean, even my page is not huge compared to all these other YouTubers, compared to Ali Abdal, compared to Karma Medic, they're not huge at all. Um, but I mean, like, like Nabil said, I mean, I hope it's helped um, that small group of students. Um, and you do tend to get messages from time to time, people saying that it's helped them a lot. Um, so I would say, yes, go for it, give it a go. And um, the good thing is about with this m- medic network that we have on Instagram and social media, it's absolutely huge. Compare, I've realized compared to any other university degree, one, medicine is probably the biggest one on social media. So I think you will always find support um, from other accounts as well. I mean, I'm happy to share content. I'm happy to collaborate and, you know, share my ideas and um, help you to grow your page as well. And I think it's a good side hobby as well, in a way. Um, so, you know, at this, while at the same time, you know, with me um, creating my A-level post, I mean, I've not done A-levels for um, a while now. 
And sometimes you can forget that knowledge, but when it comes to uh, actually making the post, yes, it's a good side hobby, but at the same time, you're actually uh, you know, keeping up to date on your own knowledge. And um, they say the best way to know whether you understand something is, to teach, is if you can teach it to someone else. So yes, I would say go for it, give it a go. Um, I mean, if you look back on my very first post, they look very cliche, they look very horrible in a way. <laughs> um, but I can see how the design has slowly built up and you will learn that with time as well, how to make your posts more engaging, uh, more concise and yeah. Like you said, just even if you're not helping the biggest community, like you said, Ali Abdul, Comedic, we, I, I'm guessing we all used them when we were trying to apply for medical school. Even if it isn't as big as that audience, you're still making a difference and making some of a difference is better than making no difference. And like you said, I completely resonate with what you mentioned when it came to the medical community on social media and how strong it is. Like you said, you've got accounts like yours that are open to collaboration and open to being accessible when it comes to your own knowledge and disseminating that knowledge. It's just really important that students of the future generation and well now actually have these free accessible resources that don't require mounds and mounds of money. So thank you so much for joining us today, Zane. Your advice has been amazing and your experience. And yeah, please check Zane out on Instagram at medheads2020 and I know that on Etsy I've checked it out you have a UCAP book yes that's the only thing from my page that's not free I have had people purchase it they have said that they really found it useful compared to a lot of the other guides which are not in great depth and charge a ridiculous price so you can buy it uh, through individual sections uh, for about three quid each I think it is or you can buy the full guide for about 10 quid well, you've heard it here. Thank you so much. Thank you for everyone listening. I hope you gained a lot from this. And for any second years or third years who are currently in the last stage of their preclinical years and going into their clinical years, you know, good luck. And if anybody has any further inquiries, you can reach out to Zane on his account. You can reach out to us at Very Junior Doctors. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Very Junior Doctors. Check us out on Instagram at Very Junior Doctors and check Chloe's page out at The Medic Map. Hope to see you in our next episode.